Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Before They Knew Better, the podcast from DIY Magazine. I am Lisa Wright. This is my co-host and producer, Giles Bidder. Hello. We are now halfway through the first season of Before They Knew Better. We've had some great guests already. Go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't already. It's Olivia Dean, Sigrid, Mae Muller, Felix White, Bastille's Dan Smith. It's been a really solid start. Today we have, well, actually it's a pretty exciting episode today. Today we have the one and only Killer Mike on the podcast. Um, pretty sort of, I mean, obje- objectively a massive star, both a music star, a sort of political icon, activist, amazing speaker, generally influential, inspirational guy. Killer Mike, pretty massive legend to begin with. And now he has just been nominated for not one, not two, but three Grammys. He has been nominated in the holy trinity, I would say, of Grammy rap categories. Best rap album, best rap song and best rap performance. He was over in London doing a couple of shows, doing a couple of fairly low-key, intimate shows for him, I think, um, in support of his recent solo album, Michael, an album on which uh, he is a young little innocent whippersnapper on the front photo. Uh, So an ideal person to get in to talk about his childhood. We ask Killer Mike to bring in a song, a photo and an object from those times all very solid of course as we would expect we had an absolutely delightful chat with killer mike um go listen to michael keep an eye on everything i mean he's always in the news he's always uh speaking out about the good shit fighting the good fight i feel like he is uh a genuinely pioneering force within both music and just the world this is the latest episode of before they knew better with diy magazine and killer mike Killer Mike, thank you so much for joining us on this. I mean, I was at your show at Lafayette yesterday, which felt like a really special, I mean, probably the smallest place that you've played in quite a while, but it felt like a really kind of magic moment. How was it for you? It's the exact same way. I mean, to me, it's, um, it's important to do those shows just to remind just be, to be the connectivity is different at, at smaller rooms it's um you know it's like when a comedian gets ready to go out and do big stadiums they always you know go around smaller rooms just testing it out so yeah. i like being you know I, I i love rocking for thousands of people i love rocking the big auditoriums you know as a, as a, your rock star and rap star dreams are yeah. fulfilled it's a beautiful thing but i'm very thankful to be in a room of six seven hundred people that just love the music and that are die hard so i absolutely just had an amazing time lafayette is a fancy place you got the mumford and sons money <laughs> going into that <laughs> yeah I had, I had an absolutely amazing time and it's been a big year i mean michael that album came out i feel like that's a perfect record for this you know this is a podcast about being young growing up what you were like as a kid and that record is obviously so rooted in the whole of your story from being young and how that kind of brought you into what you are now like how has it been as a as a process sort of digging back into that whole phase of your life and and really embracing the nostalgia of that period man i um for me it is um my childhood never really leaves me my my biggest fight 
is to not let the world quiet the nine-year-old, the 12-year-old, and the 15-year-old. Love it. Michael, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, my, my, my goal is to keep some part of that inner child absolutely alive always. I don't like the rules of the world and conformity and the systems. You know, it doesn't mean every rule doesn't have purpose. doesn't mean I just because I don't like it, it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as me, I find that the greater you accept whatever normal is, the more of your childlike imagination you lose. Yeah. And my yeah. goal is to never lose that. You know, I wanna I wanna live in that childlike imagination forever. Yeah. What are those mechanisms of, of you as a nine year old, ten year old, twelve year old, you know, what what if you could picture those things, those ideas, maybe it's like a feeling, maybe it's a place you go to, maybe it's like, you know, what you were what 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 you were eating for snack time or you know, what you were eating for lunch that time. But I mean, what are the mechanisms of that time? What do you think of? Well, I mean the mechanisms as I'm talking to you guys right now I'm drinking a, a fresh squeezed lemonade and I'm playing with two toy cars that I bought <laughs> in America. And, yeah. um, you know, later as I walk the streets of London, I'll have these toys in my pocket and I'll pull them out and I'll take pictures of them. And my goal will be, be to try to make these toys look as though they're real cars, you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's a, you know, that's a big part of it. If you type in, you know, killer Mike's toy car photography, um, auto week years ago featured my, my my toys my toy car photos so that's one way of just you know I, I i still play with toys i yeah. still i still watch you know insanely stupid movies from the 80s and 90s and um <laughs> you know i still i still listen to the music my mom was a huge music listener so i still listen to the music that puts me at a time you know i remember my mom playing the gap band playing cool in the game I remember her teaching me how to dance with a girl, you know, and telling me where it was appropriate to put your hands and not. So I do those like things, but I would say, yeah, I still read Playboy. You know, my mom caught me reading Playboy at 10 years old. And um, (laughs) because because I was actually reading and not just looking at pictures of the women's breasts, which I did do, too. But the reading was I found the articles deeply engrossing, you know, so I do things like that. You know, the same stuff I did as a kid. Pretty much I do now. And I, you know, some and my, my kids, you know, my my kids are are great at keeping me youthful. I, I like riding with my kids and asking them, so what are you listening to? Mm. You know, I, and um, and listening to the music with them. So I, 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 I try to foster that child inside of me. Having kids is a really good excuse to still be doing those things, right? Like when you've got a young kid and you're allowed to go to the playground and you're allowed to go absolutely. and like watch all the kids' cartoons and things again. Absolutely, absolutely. Cartoons is something I've never let die to. There's actually... A producer here, I don't know why his name is slipping my mind right now, but um, I found him on Instagram. His beats were these dope chops and samples, but what really pulled me into it is that he'd be playing cartoons behind him in the studio as he was producing, which I absolutely <laughs> thought was amazing. So yeah, so I would suggest that people never let go of cartoons and find toys that you like or, or hobbies and, and stick to them. I have two dads, a bio and a non-bio dad. Mm. And my non-bio dad um, has been an amazing, I love both my fathers. They're, they're, they're amazing men. Um, but my non-bio dad collects records. He collects toys. He still reads comic books. And he has been my greatest example for, even as a father, even as having children and responsibility for a family, you still can keep that inner child in you very much alive. I love it. What was your favorite cartoon as a kid? Um, I loved... I loved Bugs Bunny as a kid. Yeah. I loved Animaniac. I loved Animaniacs <laughs> as, yeah. I got, as I got older. The Hanna Barbera cartoons, you know, Yogi Bear. Um, were, were the Looney Tunes, but you know, the, yep, the Hanna Barbera ones were amazing. I loved Fat Albert in the in, in in the gang. So I was just a cartoon watcher, you know. Akira, when it comes to you know the 
what, what people would call Japanimation and stuff now. I loved, even though they weren't cartoons, Mega Man, Voltron, well, Voltron was a cartoon, G.I. Joe, He-Man was big for me, nice. Thundercats, you know, so I just, I just was a, uh, I was a lover of animation and imagination. Love it. Comedy and music. You know, there are, you, you speak about watching cartoons or the producer that's watching cartoons in the studio. There are songs and there are records outside of the skits where, you know, you can tell like beneath, mm. bubbling beneath the surface, there is comedy. There is a laugh there. There's a childhood laugh. Yes, absolutely. 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 I, it, it, don't let your laughter die. I mean, and that's at the, <clears throat> I was on. Um, my wife and I were going back and forth. We were disagreeing about something the other day and I stepped out of the shower and just fell and just bust my ass. Oh, so I'm there just, uh, I'm just naked as shit on the floor <laughs> and I, and I, and soaking wet and I can't do anything but laugh at myself. Yeah. It's absolutely fucking hilarious. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's a good diffuser, so, it, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, you, it's, um, I saw my grandparents do these, um, amazing bickerings every day they bicker with each other about something and at the end of it they laugh they'd argue about baseball they'd argue about who parked the car where you know so there, there's nothing wrong with having differences there's something wrong with you know letting those differences affect your mood to the point where you can't laugh anymore i i, I heard that there was even a study that said that even if you imitate a laugh like if you're just laughing you're not really finding anything funny you may not really be happy your brain still releases the same chemicals of happiness. So, mm. you know, even if I'm not having the best of days, I try to find a reason to laugh. Yeah, I think like, I mean, one thing that I kind of really got from your show yesterday was like, you know, obviously a lot of the lyrics that you're that you're talking about are coming from quite, a, you know, places that really range from like sort of pain and, and things that are harder that have come in your life. But like you were really smiley throughout a lot of it. Like I think like your presence yeah. on stage is like so sort of warm and has that element of like inviting people in. Like, do you think that that is like as crucial as getting those more hard hitting kind of thoughts across? Yeah, I think, yeah, you have to smile. You know, even the hard messages uh, are, are, you know, uh, there's hope filled always. So I smile because I'm genuinely happy to be on stage. I smile because I'm genuinely happy to be exchanging information and energy with my audience. Um, I smile because, man, I have a dream job. I have an amazing job. I get to yeah. travel the world, you know, with my DJ, who's also like a brother and friend to me. I get to travel the world with this amazing choir now in the Midnight Revival. I get to travel the world with my production crew that helps me put it on and the other people. It's at like, the reason I even had to push this interview 15 minutes, I wanted to make sure, because my crew leaves tomorrow and then I do the rest of my interviews by myself and I go over to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to take everybody to breakfast. So we just got a big, <laughs> big three huge tables, nice. took everyone to breakfast, then told them I got to leave breakfast early because I got to go work. But it's important <laughs> that the people that work with me and that are on my team understand they appreciate it so that smile is deeply a smile of appreciation it's That's funny nice. that you're talking about breakfast i remember you saying something going back to childhood about uh like eating about how everyone thought that you were weird because you were eating english breakfast Eat beans. Baked beans. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my wife and i just finished an, uh, an english breakfast this morning we did part we didn't do the um the blood pudding which i actually love i just didn't want to get so sleepy that i wouldn't do any more interviews today but <laughs> i um my my grandfather he ate this breakfast a few times a few days a week. My grandma he and my grandma would get up at about five in the morning. My grandma would make his eggs. She'd make him a bacon and a sausage. She'd get the beans. And if we were like in his hometown, we get nice. the blood pudding. Um, 
And, you know, people thought me and I was crazy because I'd eat, you know, beans and stuff for breakfast. But I didn't understand until I came to London for the first time that this is pretty normal, yeah. that, that beans. And I, I was like, <laughs> so, you know, so my, my conclusion was whoever owned my grandparents' family definitely came from the UK because my grandpa ate an English style breakfast to the day he died. And, and it's something that um uh, even me, I do now and my wife make sure that I get, you know, that I get it a few times a year, even when we're not over here. Yeah. And I love coming to London because I can just, I, I can eat it all day and no one can say it. <laughs> Bringing baked beans to Atlanta. Yeah. Love is stronger than pride. I still really when you come on this podcast we have asked you to pick a few things that remind you of uh your early days and like you were saying before mm-hmm. about your mum playing songs in the car and things and i think the album that you want to talk about was a sade album uh-huh. tell us about yeah. uh what your memories are of listening to that in the car well she turned me into a sade fan mm-hmm. um with sade's first album diamond light um she i remember she just threw it on my chest like you know take a listen to this because I'd be with her on the weekends. My grandparents had me and my sisters during the week because we lived with them. But in 88, um, Stronger Than Pride came out. And I'll never forget in 88 because I'm already a fan. Diamond Life made me a fan for life. Mm-hmm. But when I heard, you know, I can't pretend I intend to stop living. Can't pretend I'm good at forgiving, but I can't hate you. Though I have tried, ooh, I still really, really love you. Love is stronger than pride. I was like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> I'd never, when I say it right now, I get, I get goosebumps because, you know, I've been married 17 years now and I'm married to an amazing woman. And I'm not just saying that because she's in the room with me. I've said <laughs> it when, when she's not here. You know, people who heard my interviews have heard me talk about I've absolutely married a stunningly beautiful woman with an absolutely brilliant brain and, uh, and and who loves me deeply and I love her deeply. And I've had to understand that, you know, I've done some things that man probably pissed her off to no ends that she wouldn't accept from any other man. You know, I know, I know as a man, goddamn, she said some things to me that would make me put my head through a wall if it was anybody else. But love is stronger than our pride. It's stronger than our ego. It's stronger than every human being has the you know, potential to be somewhat narcissistic. Our love is stronger than all that. And that song, you know, to me, it sets precedent for what, you know, love could be. Love is imperfect. Love is sometimes ugly. It's messy. It's not always nice, but it is stronger than pride. It is stronger than my prideful feelings. It's stronger than my ego. And um, that that album and Sade as an artist, that album um, and that song in particular are something that I'll probably play to the day. I'm, I'm, I'm You know, I transform from this physical being back into the energy I am, you know. Wow. That's really lovely. I mean, like, does that was that something that how old were you when you were first hearing those songs? Can you remember? Um, Stronger Than Pride, probably 12, 13 years old. Okay. Was that something that even as, because, you know, when you're 12 or 13 as like a, a young boy, like, was that still yeah. resonating? Like, were you kind of getting it, powerful feelings from it even then? Well, I mean, at 12, 13 years old, uh, what I understood was, you know, I liked rap music. I liked fucking N.W.A. I liked Ice-T. I liked the Ghetto Boys. You know what I mean? I yeah. like, you know, boys is important to have a warrior aspect to them. That's why we play sports. That's why we listen to naughty music with curse words. That's why we look at Playboy magazines and things of that nature, right? There's a there's there's a warrant for that. But what Sade gave me was a a, a feminine side that was not rooted in the fantasy of 
Prince Charming. Mm. Her singing helped me. You know, my mom and dad had been deeply in love as teenagers. By the time I was 13, they'd been broken up. She married my other dad. And even, even you know, that marriage was, that marriage was probably around that time coming to an end. They were separating, not divorcing, but separating. So what I understood was that I could still love both my dads, even if my mom wasn't with them. I understood that my mom loved both my dads, but that human beings were imperfect. And Sade showed me that love was an imperfect thing. It was perfectly imperfect. It was never going to be Prince Charming and a princess awaiting at the top of a tower. Mm-hmm. But what it was was enduring and internal and deep and forever. And it meant something. You know what I mean? And her, her, she has always spoke to my soul like that. Like, you know, um, having an opportunity to meet her will probably be one of the greatest, you know, moments of my life if I ever meet her <laughs> or when I meet her. I manifest that because because she spoke to my soul. I'm a 13 year old. I have no idea what what love is for me you know I, I i thought i loved every girl in my class who had freckles and red hair you know <laughs> which i ended up marrying a girl with freckles and red hair so you know i um you know so, but her music was the soundtrack for me um liking r&b and soul music that wasn't candy that wasn't poppy that wasn't um that wasn't the the, the sale of you know i loved new edition but mr Tel- telephone man was not the song that made me made me sit and think deeply, you know, and, and say, man, I want that. Love is stronger than pride was, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you could articulate yourself very well in relationships after that? And, you know, would you speak to friends about it? I mean, I feel like if you were my mate, I'd be like, yeah, I'd be looking to you for advice all the time. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I thought I could articulate and communicate well. I thought I was, I thought I really had a handle. And then I got married and realized um, my wife doesn't understand shit I'm saying and never quite gets the concept I'm trying to sell. So God, I, God has an amazing sense of humor. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I think it's so important though, what you were saying there though, about like, um, you know, listening to that song and really understanding the relationships that were around you, that you were looking at through music. Cause like, that's what, you know, music in its best form, that's what it does, right? It sort of like translates Absolutely. the world around Absolutely. you and makes things make sense. Like, can you remember sort yeah. of, uh, I don't know, like, were there other songs around you that felt really important that did that in different ways for you at that time when you were a kid? I see, you got to remember in the 80s that that, that was this this huge, um, that was a, 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 a growth of drug addiction. You know, mm. cocaine and crack were going everywhere. I would imagine it was the same way in the UK as it was in the United States of America. But Ice-T is a person that's often, because he's been an actor so long, he has not been properly accredited and in, in, um, not not accredited, but he's not as widely recognized as he should be in how great his first four albums are. Oh, my God. Just amazing albums. Um, but Ice-T, six in the morning. When he says six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh to squeak across the bathroom floor. Out the back windows where I made my escape. Didn't even have a chance to grab my old school tape. Mad with no music, but happy to be free. Because the streets still the player is the place to be. When I heard him say that, he was the first acknowledgement that resonated with me that the world was changing. Mm. You know, police, right. po- police, you know, police were not kicking in doors prior to the drug war era of regular people with the consistency that they do now. Mm-hmm. You understand? So so for me, Ice-T's song, Six in the Morning, and that Ryan Pays album acknowledged that nothing was going to be wholesome and innocent and the same. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it, and, and, and it wasn't terrible and horrible and bad, but it was different. It was darker. It was mm-hmm. more dangerous. And to be, be frank, it was fucking fun. You know, running through the streets as a kid, kind of wilding out with no supervision, 
So Ice T, um, Ice T did that for me, and I've told him that several times. And um, you know, I remember my uncle borrowed my tape and lost it, and I fucking, I was, <laughs> I was just sad. Fever. And my 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 biological father was a police officer, and I had to tell my dad that my uncle lost my tape and I wanted, you know, my tape was like, what's wrong? I, was like, I, want, I want my tape. So they wouldn't let me buy the tape again because I was underage. So my dad took me to buy the tape. So he buys the tape and I'm thinking, okay, I got the tape in my pocket. I'm cool. And then my dad says, um, let's hear it. Uh-oh. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm shit. You know what I mean? So I got a, I, I play it. I play it. We ride down from Buford highway back to Adamsville. And, um, by the time we, get there we've had a, a beautiful conversation about what does it mean to you what does this cover mean when you see this guy in the porsche with his dj behind him and his, his girlfriend who's half naked in a bikini mm-hmm. he was like you like that i was like absolutely i do like it <laughs> you know it um you know i could I, I just as a dad now talking to my kids that openly and freely is based on the experiences i've had with my dad both of them actually they always communicated openly and freely always let me know it was safe to communicate with them so you know, that Ice T song and that day with my dad meant a lot. Yeah. I think like um what you were saying there about sort of uh Ice T and hearing that articulated for the first time, was that like a comfort? Because I'd imagine, you know, growing up like in Atlanta when there's like a changing sort of cultural climate, like that's probably quite a scary thing to to kind of witness around you like did you find that someone Yeah, I didn't find it scary. I just I needed it acknowledged. You understand? Like it, it, I wasn't afraid all of a sudden because you got to remember in Atlanta, we had been locked in the house because there was a missing and murdered children's epidemic going on. Right. So up up until the time we were 10, 11 years old, there was a heightened sense of fear in the community that black boys were going to be kidnapped. They weren't going to come home. So we had grown up in this weird fear yeah. that we were going to be taken. Right. So, you know, crack kind of explodes. And with that explosion, the, um, the world kind of opens up for kids in a wilder way. So it was exciting as shit to us, to be very honest with you. Mm. It, it, we, we weren't, we weren't afraid of, of the people who were addicts. We were afraid that there was a white van going to pick us up and we were never going to get to come home. So it, it, interestingly enough, the drug era, the, it, it opened up the doors for kids to kind of flood the streets and get into all type of debauchery. And that didn't feel like fear. It felt like freedom. It was weird. Mm-hmm. It was dark. It wasn't wholesome, but it was free. We could be outside and not be worried in the same way. You know what yeah. I mean? So you know rap music did that for me getting on the train and having adventures that your parents didn't know about did that for me so it was very freeing in a way for me tell us about the photo that will be adorning the front of this episode from uh your childhood or teenage years yeah a lot of people think that um a lot of people think that you know, because this basically this is the truth. A lot of musicians, actors get successful, they get rich and they, they sit around and they feel guilty um, mm. and they start picking up causes to, you know, everything from, you know, causes that are the forest or climate related. But they're always given something, a cause to care about. I was an organizer before I was a rapper. And the picture that I sent to my assistant to send to you guys is a picture of me <coughs> sitting with a um. I, I, this wasn't a city council person. She was a person that worked for a for an organization. Um, and the organization I worked for was an organization where kids sat on the board. It was the Atlanta Fulton Commission on Children and Youth. Oh, wow. the, the, mm-hmm. the kids part of the board was called Kids for a Change. 
And what we were, we were agents that would go out in the community and organize these town halls for kids to sit and tell adults, and not just any adults, adults who were running their cities, city council people, mayors, people from the mayor's administration. We would say, hey, these are the problems that kids have identified. Yeah. You know, be they school, be they transportation. Amazing. And we collecting this data. At the time I took this picture, I was 15, 16 years old. I was already two, three years into organizing. And, um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I have remained an organizer and a mobilizer through my life. So when you hear me on television or on radio talking about social issues, you're not listening to a guilted entertainer who's been guilted or feels bad. You're listening to someone who was called upon by his peers, by his grandparents and by those who loved him to use his ability to communicate and his ability to organize to do that. And I've been doing that since I was a teenager. And it is also something I'll probably be doing until I'm a very old man and, and decide that I've had enough of this shit. That is incredible. How did you get into that? Where, who was the person that you met or the flyer that you saw? The people who actually taught me to organize were Alice Johnson, God bless the dead. She was a white woman from Chicago, just my, my, my friend, my mentor. I loved her. We lost her to um, pancreatic cancer years ago. Um, it was a, a, a man named Reverend James Orange, who was a, a organizer with Dr. King. He was port portrayed by Omar Dorsey in the movie Selma. His daughter, who was like an older sister to me, Jemida Orange, um, who died uh, about a year ago, and her mother is also Cleo Orange, a man named Walt Cleveland. These were the people who actually taught me the one, twos, and threes of how to organize. Mm -hmm. And the inspiration to organize, along with the man who's still living named Mr. Edward Johnson. Um, but the woman who called upon me to let me know that this is your responsibility was Betty Klontz, C-O-L-N-T-S, my grandmother. My grandmother had me running around at five years old to city hall meetings with her, city council meetings, rather. She had me knocking on doors to campaign for people that she believed in. She had me at neighborhood um, unit meetings to, to, to address issues in our community. My grandmother let me know when I asked her, why are you doing this? It, she just simply said, because this is what you're supposed to do. When you're a member of a community, you're, su you're supposed to be helping. And if all of us do a little bit, none of us have to do a lot. Mm. So I've always felt it my responsibility to do my little bit. What an amazing thing to sort of grow up with that just being the norm, because I think, you know, uh, if that's just around you, then, yeah, it becomes your sort of just like it's in your bones, right? Like, what was your... Absolutely. Because you grew up, you, you lived with your grandma for... My grandparents. Yeah, my grandparents. Yeah, like, yeah. what were they like? What two, was she like as a person? Oh, uh, man, my grandparents were amazing. My grandmother was Betty with the IE. My grandfather was Willie with the IE. Nice. My grandmother was was a, 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 a liberal woman and Democrat. She had been a member of the SCLC. She was from Tuskegee, Alabama. She was from a family that acquired their own farm and land. Um, she got education because of that, you know, because her parents could afford it. Um, my grandfather was from dirt poor poverty in Edenton, Georgia. Um, his father left the family early. He had to raise, drop out of school in third grade, work at a sawmill, help raise his two sisters and help his mother. My grandfather was, was more Booker T. Washington-like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He was probably a libertarian. He did not trust the clergy. He did not trust politicians. And so if my grandfather liked a politician, I became more interested in him because he didn't like any politician. <laughs> if, my, if, my, if my grandfather would listen to a, a, a preacher, I was more interested in him because he didn't like any yeah. preachers, you know. <laughs> and um, my, my, grandmother, my grandmother was hard to find. It was hard to find a church she didn't like. 
And it was, you know, it was hard to find a Democratic politician she didn't have some reverence for. So for for me to grow up between those two types of people mm. and, and seeing them love each other in spite of their ideological differences, seeing uh, them agree on the fact that their grandchildren should work hard and value education. You know, even if, you know, even if they argued about baseball, my grandmother was a diehard Braves fan. My grandfather would like the Braves sometimes, sometimes he wouldn't. And um, I just I just grew up understanding that I didn't have to be just like the person I love. And that differences are what balanced us and made us the yin and the yang. So um, I married a woman that very much reminded me of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And I tried to operate in that marriage in a way very much like my grandfather. When, you know, when, if, when we have a money decision in our household, I'm not going to make that decision without conferring with my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to get an answer out of me, I'm going to tell you the same thing my grandfather would tell people. I got to talk to my old lady first. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to. So, so partnership is very important to me and i learned that from them respecting one another's respecting one another to and seeing each other and viewing each other and moving as partners is very important to me so i'm very i'm very happy that in some way my life emulates my grandparents yeah i think like i mean a they sound amazing and i think like to be able to sort of uh see that because you know I don't know, I think sometimes there's such a generational difference between people that grew up, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, they grew up in what, like, the sort of 40s, they, they, 50s, something like yeah, that. For, yeah, my grandfather was born in 1922, he moved to Atlanta in 1940, my grandmother was born in 1932, she moved to Atlanta in 1950. Yeah, and like, to sort yeah. of still find those common grounds throughout people that have lived through such different experiences and to take that through till now, I think like that's such a sort of like impressive lesson that you know at the end of the day it's like people are just people even though they've they've lived through very different uh eras now that you have kids of your own is that something where you're sort of trying to bring those lessons through to them well luckily you know i'm from a community i'm from a southern black community and that community is deeply connected meaning i knew my great-grandparents i knew i knew their names i went to their farm in the summers they knew me. Um, we, I grew up with them and my great grandmother died. Um, she died when I was 10 years old. So for 10 years of my life, I was right there next to her skirt him every summer. Her name was Truzella Blackman. Her husband, my great grandfather, who I also knew who we called big daddy. His <laughs> name was NH Blackman. And I re- and I recently got something, um, two, two bits of information. I don't know if you guys heard of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but it was, it was an experiment in which um, the United States government allowed black men who had contracted syphilis to go through with, through the course of disease and die um, in, in a very horrible way. My great-grandfather's father was used in that experiment. I found that out. I'd always been told that by, by my family, but it was confirmed by a researcher a few months ago. And the, and the, and the, other, the other thing was I, I got the deed from my great-grandparents who were once sharecroppers when they bought their farm. They bought their farm in in the 40s. And what impressed me most about that deed, because I had seen in my family a real equality in marriage. You know, the men and the women that were married in my family were partners and they shared a partnership and they operated as partners. I didn't see marriages where men dominated women or where men or where women hinted men to the point or badgered them to the point they were just beaten down and emasculated. I saw healthy partnerships and on the deed to my great-grandparents farm there sat both their names nh blackman and truzella blackman as co-owners of this farm together there's not a business that i own that my wife is not the not the partner with me in. Yeah. and 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 you know so it's important to me that 
in my ownership of business and my doing of business that my wife is not only my life partner, not only my spiritual partner, but very much fundamentally my financial partner as well. If you had kind of really um, politically active, you know, campaigners, like parents and grandparents who were doing that, like, were they into the idea of you being a rapper, like, and getting into the sort of entertainment industry? Uh, my, you know, my, grand, my grandfather was probably, like I say, libertarian or apolitical. They, they are concerned because by the time I became a rapper, I had already had my daughter, Anaya, and my grandfather was just in love with her. You know, she she was his baby you couldn't tell him you couldn't tell him anything wrong about her and um his biggest concern was that you're going to be able to feed his baby and you're not going to be quitting the job you know i had already dropped out of morehouse which was a mistake i wish i would have stayed in college because i ended up getting a, a record deal the same year I, I would graduate but um you know that regret aside i knew i had already was on shaky ground because they were scared of shit that somehow i was crazy for having dropped out of college and pursuing music mm. but i can remember telling them no, Grandpa, I got my first, you know, check. It, 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 it'll take me through, you know, at least a year, year and a half. I'll be, I'll be cool. I, I, don't, I don't know. I got a check for like 40, 50 grand or something at the time. Mm. Um, this was like 20, 21 years ago. And he and my grandmother both said, drive over here now and let us see the check. Because we don't, we don't. <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> so I let, I let, I, I drove it over there so they, they could see it. And then my grandmother said, give it to me, <laughs> which was which is hilarious, but no, they were just satisfied that I was, that um, that I finally achieved the mission and the goal and the dream that I wanted, mm. but at the same time that I also could take care of the responsibilities I had created, you know, in having children. Excellent. Becoming a rapper and getting into those social circles, yeah, but also that kind of, those industry circles, were you able to carry the values you'd learned before then into that scenario? I mean, there's always going to be politics and music, no matter what kind of genre or world you're in. But yeah, were you able to carry what you'd learned and and live the life you wanted within the confines of the music industry and the people that you were with? Yeah, well, I had to figure it out. You know, the music industry is um, is a different place because it's a, it's a place of play and make-believe, but it's dead serious when it comes to business. I, I dealt with people on a business level who were incredibly fair and honest and that being Outkast and Equimini Records and later Purple Ribbon Records. Um, so my music business experience have been more than not from a business side, fair and just. And on a creative side, it took me a little longer to figure out who the, who the hell Michael was in trying to communicate who I was and what I was doing. And I, and I appreciate my audience for taking this journey with me that brings us to my album, Michael. Mm -hmm. Because what I realized is that people had always witness killer mike I mean, killer mike is an mc he's swaggering he's fearless he doesn't take any mess he's like a comic book character and that's 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 a character created by a nine-year-old kid named michael but with my album michael 20 years in i got i'm finally getting an opportunity to introduce people to the man behind the, the mythology of, of of michael of killer mike yeah. that was yeah. created by michael so for me this is this has been a rewarding 20-year journey and experience and this is only the peak of this mountain. And after after this after this mountain has been climbed, um, and and I'm looking at the peak. The goal is to climb back down into a valley and find another peak to climb again. So, yeah. you know, yeah. with that said, I'll pro I'll probably be back in the studio within a couple of months, working on the next one. 
Um, so the final thing that we've asked you to bring in was an object that reminds you of uh, a certain period of the times, uh, I mean, the Michael times, the pre-Killer Mike era. Um, what did you pick for us? I picked a, a the toy Camaro that I'm going to be turning around. I'm going to send this. This Camaro is like the one my dad had. My dad's was white, but this is, um, I'm sending this one in. My dad had a white Camaro when I was a kid. Nice. And um, if anyone who's heard me talk, I've always told men, don't sell your muscle car. Don't sell your dream car. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because no matter what your wife says um, about cars and how useless it is and you should get an SUV, selling your green dream car kills the kid in you. And I remember my dad sold his Camaro and he bought like a Volvo. I was just fucking pissed. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, who the fuck wants to ride in a Volvo? You know what I mean? And, and, and I was really pissed because it meant I, I felt not only I was cool, I felt like I had the coolest dad in the world. And both my dads had cool muscle cars. Yeah. One had a Ford Fairlane. The other, the other, the other one had the Camaro. Big Mike had the Camaro. But um, I ha- I was one of my happiest days that had nothing to do with my personal gain was seeing my dad at his retirement buy a Camaro SS for himself. Yeah, um, I good. I had to, I sold twelve years ago. I sold my '95 Impala, which was my muscle car that I loved, and um, to buy my first barbershop. And now, twelve years later, I'm on the process of expanding our barbershops, creating a barber land, land, yeah. um, line of products. And I and I went back and rebought a uh, ninety ninety six. Watch that stuff that's on the top of that suitcase. <laughs> I went back and bought a nineteen ninety six Impala, and and my son um, Malik, my oldest son, said to me, he said, "I'm glad you got your car back, Dad, because I really always wanted you to pass the other one down to me. So now I know if I should <laughs> die tomorrow, who's going to take my Impala? It'll be Malik." Hey, I got to ask, what is it about American muscle cars? Because there's like, you know, the amount of films, the kind of imagery and even writing like in books, you know, what is it to you? Um, What makes them such a special kind of, you know, visceral thing? My daily driver is a is a is a Dodge Hellcat. It it is a 200 mile an hour car that burns through a tank of gas every single day. Um, (laughs) Nothing makes me happier. It's loud. It growls. Um, other, other, I, 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 I love pulling up to places and little boys just stop to look at it. And, you know, I, you can see moms walking with their sons and the moms will be, will be walking next to the sons. And the next thing you know, the son is turned around and the mom is damn near dragging them. It's just, it's just, a, it's a, it's the car made of super, it's a superhero car, whether it's the Grand Torino yeah. from the Clint Eastwood movie or, you know, or those, or the, or the Mustang from, um, from bullet you know it's just it's you know there's something about american muscle that's exciting and you know for me i'm a big fan of american trucks american muscle cars and german sedans i love you know and, and well german cars period I, you know whether you're talking about porsche or mercedes you know i just i just i think that the germans make a badass car as well but in terms of loud and badass there's nothing more american than a muscle car <laughs> Do you think it is that sort of like it going back to being a little boy and seeing that and just thinking that's the coolest thing that you've ever seen? Like, is even now you're like a grown man in your car? Like, do you still kind of get that little little kid absolutely. excitement? Absolutely, 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 <laughs> I do. Absolutely, I do. Hell yeah. To this day, and, and 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 what's crazy is when when you pull up in one of them. Old and young men alike, all just they, they look at you just like it's a brotherhood, like a congratulatory. I got right before I left um, 
and and I'll send I'll send you I'll do two pictures. I'm going to send you. I'm having a I own three Firebirds, a 67, a 68, and a 69. I bought the 68 for my wife, and the 67 and the 69 are mine. But right before I got on the plane to come here, I got a call from my um from the car builders that your car is ready when you get home. <laughs> that 68, that 67 Firebird is going to be ready. So I'll send you guys pictures of that one too, yeah. as um my first. My, my my first goal when we get home is to test her out by driving her to my wife's hometown. I bought my wife her grandmother's house um, hey, wow. as a birthday gift for her. And she she renovated the house and is using it as an Airbnb in Savannah, Georgia, which is a frequently visited yeah. tourist town and that she grew up in. And um, uh, we're going to we're going to drive the car down there and just hang out in the house she grew up in and go to the beach, you know, and just enjoy. Yeah. So I love Savannah, Spanish moss. Spanish moss that comes off the trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it too. It's an absolutely amazing city. What amazing memories, but also I think a real sort of inspiration of like how to bring your whole past and sort of make it a part of you now. I think, you know, <laughs> it's so easy to think of your life as chapters and versions of yourself that you leave behind. But I think, you know, you never really leave it behind. And I think it's really nice to hear someone talk about how they've sort of co-opted all of those like bits of themselves and it's formed, you know, this person that you are now. Yeah. It's a celebration. Thank you, thank you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, I think that's the most appropriate word. It's this album, this time in my life, these things that I that I hold dear to me, whether it is the, the $5 toy car or the $50,000 real car, they are just simply celebrations of the imagination of that nine-year-old boy. That's all. That was Killer Mike. Thank you again for listening to this latest episode of Before They Knew Better with DIY Magazine. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. And we hope that you are having an enjoyable listen on this probably cold, wintry afternoon slash evening slash whenever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to give us a like, a subscribe, give us a review if you would be so kind and you have 30 seconds. The new issue of DIY Magazine is also out now online in print. It is our November issue fronted by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard Aussie Psych Rock Heroes. We also have chats with uh, Sleater Kinney. We've got chats with Sprints. We've got all the goss on Idol's forthcoming record. That's an exciting one. We've got a catch up with Jelani Blackman who also got spoiler alert five stars for his debut album and loads of other good stuff um go to diymagazine.com forward slash shop um and give it a read